1: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. This is the 81st one of these I have done, which feels like rather a lot. And it must be very nearly the same for the programme's pronunciation guru and token northerner and European, Thea Lenaduzzi. Thea, are you going to be talking Italian today?
2: Uh, probably, the oh, Itali- Italian probably. The odd word, the odd word. The
1: odd word, yeah. Because I was thinking we were going through, the, we're going to have to sort out of the names of the various political parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say it completely differently to me, Renzi. I say sort of Renzi and Beppo de, de Grillo, and I just sound like a like a yokel. like a British person. Yeah, and, that, say, and say say the name of the, say, say the name of the former prime minister.
2: Matteo Renzi. Yeah. Like yeah, that. but see, I have a I have a closed like a Milanese e, so I say Renzi
1: rather, how, how, than, how rather it,
2: than Renzi, which is see like e or E.
1: Do the two again. Renzi is really,
2: or Renzi, which is lower down.
1: Did, did anyone else hear that? Matt is hey. shaking his head now. Really? Do you can't again. tell this so of... Do that again. Do E. Eh, yes.
2: Or oh, Reinsi Re. Come on. Do,
1: do, do get in touch if you can tell <laughs> the Junior difference between EA. the... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, listen, we set a challenge uh, last week, which has not been responded to, potentially because it's too difficult. We're trying to get people to review the podcast on itunes in a number of literary styles we've done haikus which were good we did uh hard-boiled fiction that was very good very yeah. good and then we challenged you last week to do shakespearean soliloquy which was hard to be honest and uh, it's so hard no one's done it so we're going to give it one more go but we'll make it easier and Thea, you think limericks
2: well yeah i mean either that because ugh so easy and silly but also maybe we should keep the hard-boiled one open because that's very enjoyable.
1: Okay, so hard I do, boi-
2: I do like reading those
1: ones. Okay, hard-boiled fiction or limerick. <laughs> it's you quite a juxtaposition. Yeah, exactly, or both. <laughs> a hard-boiled limerick would also work <laughs> pretty well. Uh, go on to iTunes and review the podcast and we will read out the best ones. Coming up on the show this week, we are indeed talking Italy and the great mess that is its forthcoming election. There will be a coalition of some sorts. There almost always is but of what? Hardliners from the north, the adherents of old Bunga Bunga Berlusconi, a bunch of left-wing semi-anarchists, or will the centre hold? Is there actually an answer, Thea? No. (laughs) But Tim Parks, author and translator, resident of Italy, will join forces with our very own Italian to tell us more. And we have a special this week in the TLS on Jewish humour. Not only do we have Solomon Auslander's fiercely satirical dismissal of Hasidism and Becca Rothfeld's exploration of Jewish culture, but the brilliant comic and writer David Baddiel, who's tried to answer this question, what makes Jews so funny? He'll be on the line to give us the punchline. Let's start with David Bedil This week in the paper, he shares a Jewish joke, which is both funny and sad. It involves a Holocaust survivor who dies and goes to heaven. On arrival, he tells God a Holocaust joke, and God says, that isn't funny. The survivor replies, oh, well, you had to be there. That is, comedy as bathos, as satirical observation, and above all, as a survival mechanism. It also makes overt what is often merely implied, that there is a chord of connection between Jewishness and comedy, that this cultural identity, more readily than almost any other, leads to the creation of that cultural product. As Badil notes, in the latter half of the 20th century, American comedy just was Jewish comedy, even if the Jewishness had to be tamped down to appease mainstream audiences. A case in point, he believes, is the sitcom Friends, which was written as if for six old Jews and then cast with six young attractive people. Is it possible, then, to answer the deceptively simple question of why Jews are good at comedy? The argument may be elusive, but Badil opts for the irreducible nowness common to Judaism, its rules and its self awareness. For, and this is what he says, in minutiae there is humanity. It is in reaching after the grandiose things in life that civilization gets skewed. To be microscopic comically is to create engagement. These people, the joke says, are like you because, like you, they sweat the small stuff jewish jokes either start by focusing on the small or end by making the big things small the effect is the same is that the secret to its success david Bedil joins steer and me now david welcome to you thank you as kind of first principle then is there something intrinsically comic within jewish culture do you think
3: well you know the review i wrote for the tls is of course short uh, not that short but too short to cover uh, the question uh, that Jeremy Dauber in the book I'm reviewing, Jewish Comedy A Serious History, is trying to answer, which is partly, yes, is there something specifically comic about the Jews or about the Jews' relation to comedy? And he spent a lot of time actually trying to find it in Jewish folklore and, and the religion and the Talmud and things like that. But actually, one of the things which he doesn't say overtly but which is obviously the case is that Jews practically always have to practice their comedy in non Jewish environments. I. e. Jews are always, you know, fitting into another culture in order to be comedians. And, you know, America is the best example of that because America is the immigrant culture. And something I wasn't able to didn't have time to say uh, in, in the review, but <laughs> I gladly have time to say in the podcast, is I think the other reason, apart from that minutiae thing that, that you read out, is that I think Jews are very good at being in a culture and not in it. So Jews are, you know, because Jews are not eminently, as it were, visibly different in the way that perhaps other minority cultures are, they have a foot in the mainstream culture, but they have a foot slightly outside it, And I think that is a very good position for a comedian to be kind of a little different, not massively different, but a little different. And I think that is a reason I wasn't able to go into in the view. But I think the combination of that and what you talked about, which is this Jewish tendency towards being grounded and pathetic, are possibly the two base reasons I would give.
1: We have another piece by uh, a woman called Becca Rothfeld who's looking at Jewish culture and, and humour, and, and she says uh, that it's an adaptive response to centuries of marginalisation, a kind of defence mechanism. Do you buy that as an argument as well, which is kind of um, taking your point about being on the outside a step further?
3: Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, I think there's being on the outside and then there is, of course, being a bit further outside, which is being attacked, and obviously quite a lot of Jewish comedy is about anti-Semitism. And actually, um, I was on the Today program once, talking about Jewish comedy, and and a couple of other people on were not Jewish, and at the end of it, we were asked to give our favorite Jewish joke. And I noticed that all the others, you know, without in any way suggesting that they were actually anti-Semitic, gave jokes about how Jews like money. And I told this joke, which I may as well tell now, uh, which is, uh, I don't know if it is my favourite Jewish joke, but it's the one that came to mind. Uh, An Englishman, a Frenchman, and a Jew are sitting on a bench. And the Englishman says, oh, I'm so tired and thirsty, I must have beer. The Frenchman says, oh, I am so tired and thirsty, I must have wine. And the Jew says, I'm so tired and thirsty, I must have diabetes. (laughs) And uh, even though that is obviously another stereotype of Jews being hypochondriac, I... (laughs) Felt that the key stereotype that has marked down Jews as noticeably different, and of course, at some level, leads to their genocide, is that they are obsessed with with money. And so that I would say, although I, there are some Jewish jokes about money, in general, that is a joke told about Jews by non-Jews and yeah. is anti-Semitic. And I'm just going to tell another joke that Dauber tells, and also actually uh, this other book I mentioned, or about the Jewish joke. Tells and this is a joke that's in both of them, and I think this is a very important joke. I'd never heard it before before I read these books. And uh, two Jews, I think it's a very ancient joke, because I think in Baum's one that he talks about a, a, a passing through a church in the Pale of Settlement, which is some 19th century <laughs> Russian <laughs> corridor. Uh, and they, they see a church. Outside the church, there's a sign saying, come in here and convert for ten rubles. And the two Jews talk about it, and one of the Jews says, I'm going to do it, I'm going to go in. And the other Jew waits outside, and then the other guy comes out, the first Jew comes out. And the Jew's waiting outside says to him, so, did you get your ten rubles? And the other one says, oh, that's all you people think about. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that joke, because that is not an anti-Semitic Jewish joke about how Jews are obsessed with money. It's a joke about how Gentiles think Jews are obsessed with money. And therefore, those jokes in general, which do represent you know, an element of the comedy we're talking about are not, in my mind, Jewish comedy by Jews.
1: It's also a joke about assimilation, that. And one yeah, of the one of the, the theses that comes out of, of, of your piece and others actually we're running is this notion that there's something universal about Jewish comedy, because it's often about the underdog. And of course, yeah. at some level, we all feel we're underdogs yeah, for true, some reason. Yeah. So is there a, a mechanism by which comedy assist assimilation or, or at least treats of universals that might mean we focus on how we're alike rather than how we're different?
3: Then I think you have to go into the American experience, which I don't think has necessarily happened completely in other countries. So the American experience, I would say yes, that there, there seems to have been... I'm being empirical here, talking from experience. I went and did stand-up in New York first. I've done it a couple of times uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. And I was in a club in New York, just an ordinary club, and I noticed that one comedian started talking about Passover, about how Passover had come and gone. But then I noticed the next comedian did, and he was Mexican. And then I realised something, which is that it's been so successfully assimilated, kind of Jewish stuff, in New York, particularly, but maybe in, in sort of you know, well, in in the big cities in America, that something has happened there, which which doesn't really exist anywhere else, which is a general understanding in the mainstream culture of what jewish stuff is of bits of yiddish of the jewish attitude and that has come via comedy and that is very good i mean i would say i would say any minority culture is is sort of happy at some level at the idea that their things are noticed by and you know given credence and respect to even in jokes by the mainstream culture because at the end of the day if that happens you sort of feel slightly protected we yeah. sort of feel like they're not going to kill us because they know about us, they're humanising us. You know what I mean? I would say here, and this has been part of my, for want of a better word, struggle, I would say my struggle, but that, of course, <laughs> is mine camp. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Of My struggle.
1: We won't translate yeah. anything to German, don't worry, yeah, in this yeah, whole podcast. Um,
3: but part of my thing, I guess, well, as a, is, is, is there an Anglo-Jewish comic culture? And there kind of is, and actually loads and loads of comedians uh, in Britain are Jewish, but it's rare... I, I'm kind of one of the only ones who, uh, who actually forefront their Jewishness. So, same, you know, Matt Lucas and Simon Amstel and Stephen Fry and Alexei Sale, you know, they're all Jewish, Ben Elton. But Jewishness has never been a big thing for them, and I, I don't think that's, that's anything to do with anything else except for a sense that there is no obvious, visible, powerful Jewish comic culture in Britain like there is in America, and so they haven't fastened to it. But I, I've always been keen on sort of trying to create one.
2: Why, why do you think that that's not transferred then? Why is, say, uh, the legacy of Lenny Bruce you go into um, a fair bit as Dalma does? How come that hasn't carried over here, do you think? Well,
3: because there's something very Jewish about Lenny Bruce, but there's also something very American about him. You know, mm-hmm. that routine that I quote about, you know, Count Basie's a Jew and you know someone else is a Goy and blah blah blah. It's very Jewish, but it's very American. It's jazz and it, and all the rest of it. And so uh, there's something about the yoking together of the Jewish voice and the American voice that has been incredibly potent, comically. But I also would say is the communities are different. I mean, there's for a start there's like five million Jews in New York or whatever mm-hmm. it is. There's three hundred thousand Jews in Britain. Uh, so it's a small community. And um, I once said of uh, the what well, someone said to me of the Jewish Chronicle that their headline, their basic headline is, oh, they hate us. And I said, no, no, it's, oh, they hate us, and let's not make a fuss about it. <laughs> because, because Jews in Britain are British, and so as a result, they don't really like to put their heads too much above the parapet. They're reserved. And that's not good if you want to be Larry David, you know, because Larry David is loud and, you know, makes a thing about him being Jewish. A lot of Jews in Britain, sort have that thing, which, to be fair, is just like a European thing. You know, like many Jews, we come from you know running away we come from refugee stock there's a fear of like oh I, I don't know if i want to talk too much about being jewish and in a much more banal way i would say if you look at say simon Amstell, matt lucas Stephen Fry, whatever they are gay and i think becoming someone who would talk about stuff gay was a cooler thing to talk about than jewish i think uh, i mean this sounds like i'm criticizing them yeah. i'm not uh, i'm i'm just saying that i think Jew has not been a pixie-cool identity in Britain for a comedian to talk about, but I'm doing my best, I've done my best <laughs> to make it... Uh, you failed, place.
1: David. David, I, but I, you failed. Were, you I were, failed to make it cool completely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, this is slightly off the point, but I'm, as we're talking about American comedy, why is Friends Jewish?
3: I mean, I think it's to do with just the sort of way they talk to each other. I yeah. mean, it was the same in Seinfeld. The thing that I say about Seinfeld is that, you know, It was uh, due down, as it were, for the mainstream culture. But what I mean by that is that George Costanza is Greek, and obviously he's Jewish. I mean, he's ridiculously Jewish. Elaine uh, is meant to be non-Jewish as well. So the only non-Jewish character in Seinfeld And so that you know, that's a very Seinfeld thing. Is that Seinfeld was prepared to go into the nitty gritty of Jews and jokes? I don't know. I don't know if I ever saw that in him.
1: Yeah, it's more self conscious than Seinfeld. Um, we we I began by quoting that very good Auschwitz joke that you yeah. tell, and I've seen you tell it on on social media as well. I think it's yeah. just it's brilliant. You also refer to Harriet Harman getting in trouble on a BBC political show for quoting a terrible Holocaust Holocaust joke, and I saw that interview. It wasn't entirely clear why she was doing it, even as. She was doing it. Do you think there are rules? I mean, this is the thing that I think Seinfeld often meditates upon, the, the rules of comedy. Are there specific rules to do with telling jokes about the Holocaust, or are they just a simple rule? If you come into it with clean hands and good intentions, you can do it. If you don't, you can't.
3: Well, I think there are rules for telling jokes, uh, and I think Harriet Harmony's is not a comedian. <laughs> and uh, And I think actually... I, I can say this, I think, is that telling jokes is actually quite a skillful process. And most people don't don't really know that, because obviously we all tell jokes, but telling them publicly takes quite a lot of skill, and Harriet Harman didn't have that. And she, the point she was trying to make, I think, because they were talking, I think, about what is and isn't acceptable online, was that some jokes are unacceptable. But then she went on to tell an incredibly unacceptable joke, and that's kind of a complex thing to do, which the complexity, I think, didn't quite reach her which is that the joke will still feel, you know, extremely awful. And she also went on to claim that uh, Andrew Neil would have liked the joke, which he got very upset about. Um, And so I think, I I mean, my personal view about this and uh, about Holocaust jokes or whatever it might be, like dementia jokes that I do in my show, any subject that is considered to be, you know, off-limits or you can't be funny about this, is it's never true because you have to look at the individual joke. So it's never the case that a a Holocaust joke is unacceptable because it's laughing at the victims of the Holocaust because, and the TLS is a good thing to look at that, is essentially you have to deconstruct it. You have to do some literary criticism of the joke and you have to say who is being laughed at, what stereotypes are being used, if any. You know, uh, is the joke humanizing uh, the victims of the Holocaust or is it non-humanizing them? So if I can go over that, uh, I don't want to do that joke, but it basically just reduced, in the Holocaust to nothingness and to ashes, whereas I contrasted it with Larry David, yeah. who did a routine on SNL, for which he got into trouble by stupid people online saying you can't do jokes about this. But the routine was about, an incredibly edgy routine, actually, about how he'd noticed that a lot of the Me Too villains were Jewish, and he just kind of said this. Um, get, that itself, I thought, was edgier, in fact, than the Holocaust thing, but his point was male Jews are obsessed with women. He says, even if I was in Auschwitz, i would still be checking out the women. And then he does this hilarious bit where he looks over to a imaginary woman and says, hey, you know, when this is like all over, do you want to like go for dinner or, you know, just hang out? And then he's like, what, what's the problem? Is it me or is it just the whole thing? Right? And I loved that. A, it was just a hilarious bit, but also it sort of moved me because it did that thing of saying these yeah. people they are real people, they are humans, they are like you and me. They would think about dinner and sex, and they were killed. And that is moving and funny at the same time.
2: And the crucial difference also being, of course, that the, the teller has to be invested in, in the history that, that he or she is drawing on.
3: Yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that's like a condition. Uh-huh. So I I think it is an emotional truth. So I think that Larry David, I don't know his personal history, but. I don't think it is the case, absolutely, that you have to be part of that minority to be able to tell the edgy joke. Uh, I think it definitely helps because you probably just are invested in the truth. It's hard,
1: to, it's hard to imagine a non-Jewish person doing that joke, though.
3: Yeah, it is hard to imagine it, I, I accept that. But I still think it's about deconstructing no. the meaning rather than necessarily the, just basing on the identity
1: of the teller. We talked on, on social media, David, about, do you remember when James Corden told jokes about Me Too? Yeah. And he told jokes about Harvey Weinstein and it was just two days after the story really broke and he was he was excoriated for it um, and arguably not because it's wrong to tell jokes about Harvey Weinstein because actually puncturing the bubble of Harvey Weinstein is something that comedy could, could do very well but it seemed he just didn't do it with enough ferocity or enough skill so he was criticised for doing stuff about something that's not funny in inverted yeah, commas I
3: offended him online, got into various about that i mean uh, i think it was complicated i I think the ability to do jokes about a difficult subject is always necessary and that i think the blanket ban that seemed to be sort of looming uh, at that point uh, and the idea that you know you were mocking the victims of harvey weinstein by doing jokes about it seemed to me to be clearly wrong clearly the target was harvey weinstein and not telling jokes about harvey weinstein was already something that i've seen other comedians you know accused of as, as if they were leaving him out and then actually what happened was soon after that seth myers and, and jimmy fallon and, and you know all those people john oliver did lots of jokes about msnl or whatever and it seemed to me to be a case of like oh they can do it because they're cool even though they were all principally men but james corden can't do it because he's not cool and i thought that was unfair Having <laughs> said that they weren't very good jokes and i guess it might at some level, come down to that.
2: Is there such a thing as, uh, this is something that people often say, and I remember in in the wake of um, the Jimmy Savile affair as well, is too soon. People say, you know, oh, too soon, too soon. Is there such a thing as too soon?
3: No, I don't agree with too soon. Actually, in my show, My Family Lot the Sitcom, which I'm off to tonight, I talk about the too soon phenomenon, specifically Uh with jokes about people who who have just died, um, uh, about how that happens quite a lot if you do a joke about someone who's just died. And the reason I do that is, I'm about to talk about my mother who died yeah. um and and i'm going to talk very very comically about her and and i asked the question who is going to say to me about my the you know, making jokes about my own dead mother too soon um and i i don't really agree with that although obviously we all know the, the comedy is tragedy plus time thing i i sort of don't accept that really mm-hmm. i mean i sort of i sort of feel the Truth of it, I guess. I, I, you know, I, I mean, for example, it's quite common now in American movies to see 9/11 jokes. There's a brilliant joke in The Big Sick. Uh, in The Big Sick, there's a bit where the main character. Main character.
1: I think it arguably comes back to to intent again doesn't it it's about just deconstructing the purpose of the joke and and its context and if it's done with without hatred or without the effect of about co- the desire to cause hatred that's a, that's a that's that presumably what makes it acceptable isn't it
3: no i don't know if that's true i i, I in terms of the time thing um, i mean I, I guess what you could say is if you were to do a completely innocuous without hatred joke the day after a major tragedy it would still be but not by sense, you. I'm saying something really kind of nerdy here, which is that, that logically, time should not make such a big difference. But yeah. I guess the assumption is that any joke made about a tragedy the day after the tragedy or a week, only a week after the tragedy is liable yeah. to be hurtful or more hurtful yeah. to those people. Then again, if you had someone killed in 9-11, a close relative, there's no reason why you aren't hurt and upset by a joke five years later.
1: That's true. Just, just finally, David, your Twitter bio is one word Jew, and we just talked about social media. How do you find discussing matters relating to Jewishness on on social media? Is it a place of of subtlety and nuance and and, and great debate?
3: I doubt it very much. Uh, No, (laughs) no, and actually, as you know, I get into a lot of conversations with both straightforward anti-Semites, but more often, and this is more complicated in a way, people who don't really know what anti-Semitism is and don't really recognise their own anti-Semitism, actually, to bring it back round to comedy. Uh, I happened to tweet yesterday... Uh, just because I was watching it. And I love The Simpsons, so I should make that absolutely clear. But I happened to tweet yesterday that I was watching the so, episode in which Krusty the Clown uh, is sort of revealed as Jewish. It's a big, very Jewish episode with Jackie Mason plays his rabbi dad. And I said sometimes when I'm watching, you know, the mean-spirited, obsessed-with-money <laughs> Jewish clown Krusty, I think about all the conflicting arguments about Apu. Yeah. Uh, and what I meant by that is, as you may know, there's a very big discussion going on now about whether Apu is a racist character, and one um, Asian writer has sort of said that he, he shouldn't be in The Simpsons and, and whatever, and, I, and I'm not going into, I mean, I'm sure that guy's completely right to bring that up. My point really was, anti-Semitism, uh, and this is often my point, tends to get left out, at some level, of the woke Venn diagram, uh, that there just isn't the discussion happening about Krusty and whether or not it's acceptable uh, for this character- Jewish stereotype, and then what happened was, loads Yeah, the context, that would be, well, goysplaining is what it is. <laughs> that would be, you know, I think a brown person, you know, raising questions.
1: David, we could talk about this uh, forever and ever, but you better go and, and, and get, get to Birmingham to, to do your, your show. Yeah, I've yeah, this to read.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. uh, David, thank you so much. For, uh, it's, it's a wonderful piece. I really hope people uh, go check it out and, and read it. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you, Stig. Thank you, Thea. Cheers. Thank Cheers, bye. you. Bye.
2: bye. Good luck. I find the, the language of the joke itself really interesting. You know how we have all of these different words. There's a gag yeah. or a joke. And the kind of the etymology of those differences because I was thinking about um, towards the end of his piece where David uh, gives us those two Holocaust jokes and one in particular is is very sad it's very wistful he says um, it's a Holocaust survivor who's lost his entire family an officer asks him where he intends to go now and he says Australia and the officer says Australia but that's so far and and the survivor says from where yeah. And, you know, that's, is is it a joke or is it, in, in, in Italy we have the word barzelletta, which is, it has more to do with telling a story and it's more linked to music and poetry originally, yeah. versus scherzo, which is a joke which has more to do with punch kind lines. of punchlines, but it's usually at someone's expense. Okay, and, and so it's a bit cruel, there's a there's, sort of there's cruelty. There's a cruelness to it, there's that superiority, you know, yeah. you're laughing because you're superior, all of that sort of theory to it.
1: And, and I do think it comes to, and he didn't quite agree with this, but I do think it comes to intent and purpose. And if you're telling either one of those Holocaust jokes we've told in this, in the course of this podcast, it's quite clear that you can tell them full of humanity and full of recognising what their purpose is. Mm. If you tell one that's just... that funny if I was Googling best Jewish jokes when we're getting this piece together and half of them are kind of celebratory and inclusive and wry and self-conscious and all the things that there is kind of this in this Jewish comic tradition and then half of them are just racist jokes there's whole websites devoted to racist mm. anti-Jewish jokes but it should be possible and this is not the world we live in but we, we it should be possible to distinguish between those two things jokes that are done with clean hands and mm. jokes that are done for the purposes of ill and mm. and it shouldn't be impossible to distinguish between those two things. Yeah. Although the internet isn't possibly the place, or the Twitter's not the place to do all those.
2: No, I would think not. Not, not the site of nuance.
1: Yeah, that's exactly
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving
2: sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. Italians go to the polls this Sunday, March 4th, to vote for the next Prime Minister. But who's next in line to assume this role, held by nearly 30 men in the 70-odd years since the end of the Second World War, could hardly be more unclear. Among today's contenders, and the largest single party in the polls, is the anti-establishment five-star movement, founded in 2009 by the comedian Beppe Grillo and currently led by the 31-year-old Luigi Di Maio. Then there's a right-wing coalition assembled by the 81-year-old Silvio Berlusconi, seemingly undeterred by not technically being allowed to run for office due to multiple and still mounting corruption charges against him. And then miles behind, there's the centre-left Democratic Party, the PD, manned by Matteo Renzi, the young, progressive former PM. He's the would-be Macron figure here, on whom many pinned their hopes only a few years ago, only to see him quickly crash out of power when a referendum in 2016 on which he had staked his position – indeed his reputation – didn't go his way. Meanwhile, fascism – and lest we forget Italy invented it – is undeniably visibly on the rise. So to say things are looking dire is an understatement. Even the direness of it is all unusually complicated in true Italian style. Tim Parks, who lives in Milan, has elegantly grappled with all of this in this week's paper. And he joins us on the line now. Hi. Hi. Good to speak to you. Uh, Good to speak to you. Uh, It's difficult to know where to start, really. Uh, So perhaps uh, you can tell us what is the mood (laughs) like now where you are, just days from the vote?
4: It's an interesting thing that in Italy, in the last week or so of the election campaign, one can't have any more opinion polls. So we really don't know how the opinion polls are moving right now. But at the end, the last polls we got made it look as if it was getting into a straight race between Berlusconi and the five-star movement with Matteo Renzi's party, which of course is the party that's been governing for the last few years, falling further and further behind.
2: That in itself is quite peculiar though, isn't it? I mean, so Paolo Gentiloni is the current PM. He's He's... He's in power and he belongs to the PD party, as you said. It's kind of symptomatic, I suppose, that not many people over here probably even recognise his name. I've never even
1: heard I've got to be honest, I've never even heard of heard his name before.
2: But he, he is in Italy, he's he's relatively popular because I mean the economy is picking up slowly after a series of structural reforms that he, he steered through and the polls suggest that he's one of the more trusted members of the PD. Has it been a huge mistake on the party's part to have Renzi run as the leader? Would would Gentiloni have fared better, do you think?
4: Gentiloni is the typical safe pair of hands figure. Renzi made the mistake, I think, of really trying to change things. And as long as there isn't a desperate crisis, I think many, many Italians would like things to go on more or less as they are. And they're going to vote for for Berlusconi, whose constant message is, uh, it's all right, we don't really need to change that much we just need to cut a few more taxes. And on the other hand, you've got you've got a huge community of people who, who genuinely are not doing very well, who have suffered probably quite considerably from this very, very long recession and then sense of stasis and no growth that Italy has had now for so many years. These are many of them young people who have never worked at all, uh, never been able to find a job and see a country that, is endemically corrupt and in the hands of a number of people who are sort of negotiating between their various factions. And these people are probably going to vote for the Movimento Cinque Stelle, the the five-star movement. So there you have it.
1: If people vote for five-star movement, are they effectively... Uh, wasting their vote because this is not a a, a group of people who will ever go into coalition is that right they're fundamentally almost anarchist aren't they in in their approach so are are these the very definition of a protest vote from disenfranchised people who wish to register that concern or is there a route to power
4: well over the last year or so they've certainly tried to change and present themselves as a possible party of government and they've just in the last couple of days produced a list of ministers that they would put in place if they got into power the problem is that the the electoral machinery is such that it's extremely hard for anybody to get a working majority in both houses of parliament and both houses of parliament have equal power in italy and both houses of parliament have slightly different ways of being of being elected for for example To vote for the House of Deputies, one only needs to be 18. To vote for the Senate, one needs to be 25. And that means that it's quite a different constituency voting for the two houses. So if it's impossible for anybody to have a clear majority, that means coalitions. And so far, the, the Five Star Movement has avoided them, although they have now said they are willing to engage in discussions about a program. But it's unimaginable that there could be a program between the Five Star Movement and Berlusconi's grouping.
1: If you had two biggest parties being the Five Star Movement and Berlusconi's, you utterly incapable of working together. What then happens? What's the is a sort of minority coalition formed by the other parties? What What's the pragmatic answer to, to that?
4: A minority government would be very unlikely to to have much success. There is already a problem in coalitions that the minor parties tend to insist on getting a great deal out of them or or pull the plug at the first opportunity. Everybody has been accusing Renzi, uh, who we remember is is the leader of the Partito Democratico, the the left-wing party. Everybody has been accusing him of preparing to form a coalition with Berlusconi. A number of splinter groups have left his party and have split his vote, which seems to me simply to invite And and to encourage the possibility that, in fact, uh, there will be a situation where uh, the only reasonable possible government might be between Berlusconi and Renzi. Obviously, that would be a huge problem for the League, which is in a coalition with Berlusconi and which would never work, I don't think. And, is the league um, the fascist? Is the league yeah, the fascist? The, the M- league M- is
1: the fascist one. Is that worth explaining well, to you? I
4: really think I yes. really think <laughs> you should avoid the F word. Yeah. Okay. You know, uh, it's so easy to say that word fascism. What on earth does it mean today? The Liga is a slightly a, a definitely xenophobic party, a party of law and order. I would say that it, it was no more to the to the right of UKIP.
2: I do think that there is probably quite a. A fundamental difficulty, though, for people outside of Italy to understand the specific nature of Italy's right wing and the resurgence of it recently, because it isn't the same as the right wing in in Britain. There isn't that same nationalist undercurrent. or oh, it's not even an undercurrent, it's an overcurrent.
4: Well, it's not a nationalist party. No, it's not a party that one could easily equate with UKIP. You know, people talk about this sudden and dangerous rise of the of the extreme right. But I don't think it's helpful. The Lega is now running higher than it's run for many years, but not higher than it ran, you, you know, many, many years ago. So we simply have a swing and roundabout situation. The Lega is, is nothing like as as far right as say Le Pen in in France as far as I can see. It's a very complex situation where it, it's terribly easy to try and explain it to yourself by by looking for patterns you've seen in other countries and laying them over this situation and, and in fact it's it's Alas, not not so easy to be clear about.
2: And you, well, you make you make that clear in your piece. You say it's hard to decide exactly what these elections are about because they don't fit the template of uh, other elections that we've seen recently. What do you think these elections are are about in Italy?
4: Now the country is out of the economic crisis that it was in when Berlusconi was forced out of power some years ago. Now that things are just beginning to move forward again, and we have some growth in the economy, instead of being thankful uh, to the government, which uh, somehow may or may not have brought that about, the country is turning towards more of the same, more of of, um, we can go on as we always have, with a little bit more unpleasantness towards uh, the immigrant community and with a a, a little bit more uh, aggression when it comes to immigration matters in general. Over other issues, it is honestly difficult to see any policy at all of any importance on the right. Berlusconi talks about cutting taxes, he talks about a flat tax. It's hard to see how attractive a flat tax could be to most people on ordinary incomes since a flat tax would probably benefit only the rich. So r- really it's as if the country is either very much in favour of a radical change with the five-star movement or really looking for something even more comfortable than what the present government has been offering.
2: But then as we see again and again, and this is true of when Rinsi was in power, you can you can vote for change, but then when change actually starts to get close, you know, electoral reform or whatever it is, they balk.
4: This is a constant conundrum here, is that when the country does fall into a moment uh, where it looks like the markets are tumbling and uh, the the famous spread between uh, interest rates in Italy and Germany suddenly threatens, then there is a move towards somebody who is considered a reformer and ready to make the serious changes that need to be made to get Italy competing again. And then as soon as that moment passes, that mandate is very quickly removed from from that person. And since uh, this this present government hasn't had an easy majority in both Houses of Parliament, it's been a lot of trouble in the Senate, uh, it's been all too easy uh, to end up with With the reforms that are so complex and so much the result of compromise that in the end nobody really wants them. Mm. Uh, So it's very difficult to see actually how Italy can move forward and um, we're all terribly curious to see what's going to happen next. Is it
1: it extraordinary, is is someone from outside about Berlusconi, how extraordinary is this fact that this, this, this guy who has been charged with corruption, as Thea says, those charges are increasing rather than diminishing. Is it surprising to you who live in Italy that he still holds on to the reins of power in this way, or is that just in some ways a symptom of, of the very messy situation that that, that exists
4: there? Berlusconi is not actually facing more corruption charges now particularly, but he was convicted of corruption uh, and banned for holding public office for, for five years. Uh, and those five years end in 2019. He, remember, more or less controls three major TV channels and holds huge amounts of, of the media. It is an extraordinary conflict of interest for any political leader. It will be quite unacceptable in most countries. It is extraordinary that the European Union has not in any way intervened over this. The Italians are not big on the spirit of the law. They're very big (laughs) on the letter of the law. And uh, the obvious spirit of the law of banning somebody from holding power for five years is that he should not participate in elections and have his name on the ballot sheet. But that is exactly what is happening. So the spirit of the law is being totally flouted. It's extraordinary that the the newspapers are simply not talking about this. There is absolutely no discussion of the legitimacy of Berlusconi's position at the moment. And in fact, it's quite extraordinary to me that Juncker and Merkel have both recently met Berlusconi to talk to him, giving him a kind of legitimacy. So it seems that in Europe, what mainly worries them is having a government that's not anti-European. And they're not particularly worried about the, the implications of, of a return of Belluscon.
2: Well, Tim, thank you very much. Predictably, I feel no less hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very yes, much not, for Yes, not
4: probably any clearer. I've grown up in it, so I'm
2: used to <laughs> okay. feeling utterly torn. But I think particularly talking about it now, I, I find myself getting so... Tangled up in whether I'm even saying we or they. I just don't know anymore.
4: <laughs> we will see. We will see.
1: We will well, see. thank
2: you very much, Tim.
1: It seems to me that the EU's response is classically pragmatic. Yeah. To say is the most likely result here a centre-right coalition which has a bit of the, the Northern yeah. League. And a bit of Berlusconi, or is it more likely to be a, a centre cent, centre right centre left one, which is sort of Berlusconi and, and Renzi's party?
2: I think the former, but then the, there are no predictions really that that count at this stage. I don't think.
1: So the, um, all uh, I
2: all I know is that whatever we're not managing to sort out now is it's only it's only being delayed and it's been delayed and delayed forever more. I mean, the last time we had someone who we actually genuinely voted for, for was many years ago, and then we had technocratic governments, and then renci in power for a bit and then someone else to fill his shoes and the democracy is 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 very strained in italy yeah. and i think you know as tim points out in his piece young people are voting with their feet uh, the country yeah is seeing unprecedented levels of emigration 250,000 so it's at, at its highest since the 1940s when much of my family left and i saw then i saw a study this morning that suggests that up to 40% of 18 to 25-year-olds may abstain from voting.
1: Well, I wouldn't vote in this situation because it seems you, it seems very hard to work out who you would. I mean, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think if you're even if you're sort of liberalish, liberal left in this country, equivalent. Who would you vote for? You'd probably vote for Renzi. Well, level. I would
2: vote for DNC hands yeah. down. Oh, and I was I was just before uh, we came onto this show. I was talking with our a mat about how hopeless it all is really but my I'm not able to vote in this election because of a bureaucratic nightmare uh, that happened at the uh, the London consulate the same for my sister I met my friend last week who's the same as me half Italian half English feels more Italian lives in England and she's not able to vote because of some other complication all of the people who work in our our coffee shop here in, in the building all Italians none of them are voting yeah, and we're the people who have left the country, and so supposedly should feel even more strongly that it needs to change, I mean, yeah. so that we can go home or whatever. Imagine
1: if Italy got its act together.
2: You imagine it, c- 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 it would be the best country <laughs> in the world. Because it, would it, it be kind so of, good. It
1: kind of has a functioning economy, even despite all this. It kind yeah, of yeah, it's you know, the
2: fourth biggest. Yeah, allegedly. Yeah, <laughs> but you just think if
1: you if you if you if you sort of substituted yeah. some of the Germanic structures around it, or mm. even British, which is a great muddle in itself, but just had a little bit of order, yeah. it would take over the world. Yeah. There'd be another Roman but it's Empire. Many,
2: it's, it's many countries and that's, that's yeah. the problem.
1: How interesting. Well, I, I, I found that even though I don't understand what's going to happen, I understand no the does. true depths of my <laughs> ignorance, which I think is in progress, <laughs> Socratically enough. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to David Badil and Tim Parks. Do pick up a copy of the paper or visit our website to subscribe. This week we also examine the wisdom of all fonts. Clever. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Sorry. Slightly delayed (laughs) there. It took a
1: while. The political heart of Black (laughs) Panther and much more. Next week we'll be back, or at least Thea will be. I'm off. I think so. I'm going to leave worrying about what will be on the show to you, Thea. -er.
2: Good.
1: Have you cracked it yet? Uh, Yeah, I have,
2: actually. Okay. Hmm. I think it's going to be very good.
1: It's going to be very good. (laughs) You should make sure you listen to it. Until next time, from Thea and from me, goodbye.